Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast and welcome to episode 173. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin is the co-founder of the wonderful Racket Magazine and the co-host of Racket Podcast. If you remember, if you're a regular listener to the show, you remember she was on in the middle of 2019 in episode 126. There's a link to that episode in the show notes. She came on for a conversation around the parallel paths that professional tennis and the profession of medicine are walking with respect to gender bias. And in this conversation today, we kind of pick up where that left off, this idea of learning from two different industries, but also some similar elements, especially in terms of size and impact on a worldwide level. This time, though, we're looking at the impact of climate change and how healthcare and how professional tennis, as sort of a mirror of professional sports in general, have a role to play in the worldwide response to global climate change. And you may kind of be hearing this and thinking to yourself, why an editor and a founder of a tennis magazine on a healthcare podcast? And that's sort of the point is that we we look to bring in voices that may not necessarily on the surface seem to click, but with Caitlin, that's exactly what happens. And what's become really clear to me, having had the chance to now speak with her twice, is that Caitlin is a force. Caitlin is one of those people who right now it's tennis, but she is just sort of beginning the upward trajectory of her career and the impact that she's going to have. And that's really exciting. For me, Caitlin is just getting started. So last time it was gender equity. This time it's climate change. I cannot wait to see where the conversations with her go next. But this is a really, really interesting discussion. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Before we get to Caitlin, I just want to invite everyone again, please check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. Caitlin is episode 126, as I mentioned, and then you can find the whole wealth of the show that's there. Definitely subscribe. Please leave us a rating and review wherever you like to download your shows. It's a really important thing if you are able to do that, subscribe. And also, if you have the chance to share with friends, share with colleagues, share with people who may be interested, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Explore the Space is a really special thing. I'm really, really proud of it. And when I, when we see that people are, are engaging, subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, sharing with friends, commenting on social media, it's really meaningful and it's really, really special. You can connect with me on social media. I'm on Twitter at ETS show and on Instagram at explore the space show. And you can email me anytime mark at explore the space show.com. We also have links in the show notes to how to learn more about racket magazine and how to connect with Caitlin on social media as well. As I said, Caitlin's just one of those people who has really important, thoughtful, and impactful things to say. I'm so excited that she's back. You're going to really enjoy this. So without further ado, Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin, welcome back to Explore the Space. I'm delighted you're here. Hey, Mark. Thanks again for having me. So a lot has transpired. There's lots of things we could talk about. The last time you were on the show, it was a really cool opportunity for us to bring our two sort of worlds together from the perspective of progress around gender equity, perspectives around gender equity. It was really well received. It was that it's sort of that mashup where who knows how it's going to work. And it worked. That was my perspective. What did you get feedback around it? Absolutely. I did actually a lot of folks sort of wanted us to go deeper and push 
deeper into that. And, you know, as we saw with this year's Australian Open, which happened just, you know, within the past couple of weeks, beset by wildfires, the, you know, the tournament site was itself engulfed in smoke. It really brought to a head something that I think we were a little ahead of ourselves talking about at the end of last year, but could not be more relevant. I know, yeah. you know, you as somebody in California have experienced wildfires. We could talk about that. That's just one way in which climate change is already, you know, revealing itself. But it, it really does sort of make the issue really one that tennis as a sport and as a, you know, community needs to address. Uh, and, and I'm happy we started the conversation on the podcast and it's one that I'm going to revisit. There's also some stuff I wish I would have said in the moment um, that wa- would be a little bit more pointed, um, you know, and, and I, I, I'm eager to revisit it because I think there's a lot, lot, lot we can explore. I'm glad that there's a, a place where if you have things that you didn't get a chance to say on your show that you can say them here, that's really meaningful. Cause I reached out. So you did that episode towards the end of last year talking about tennis and climate change. And right. we're both huge sports fans. We're both huge tennis fans. Obviously your profession is now built around the sport of tennis. Your <laughs> right. livelihood is baked in around this. And I think it's really compelling to be able to say, look, this is a huge problem. Our sport is two things. Number one, not immune. And two, we need to make sure we're not a driver of the, of the things that are troubling. You brought up Australia and you and I were emailing back and forth when the Australian open was about to kick off. And just to give people who aren't as kind of in the loop as you and I were at the time. So right before the tournament started, they're doing the qualifying round. So the players who are trying to get into the main draw are going at it, hammer and tongs to try to try to get into the tournament. And this was right at the apex of the extraordinarily catastrophic Australian wildfires where the smoke was just ringing the whole nation and it was extraordinarily troubling. One player, Delilah Jakupovic, had to retire from a match because she had this terrible paroxysm of cough. Her respiration was impaired. She had to leave the court. And there was this moment of, is this tournament going to happen? There's an event that's being driven because of climate change. It's now affecting the Australian Open. What's about to happen? Yeah. It felt like a moment to me. Did it feel like a moment to you or was I overinflating it? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I was kind of dismissive of it, not in the sense that I don't, uh, you know, pretty fervently believe that we should have been addressing this with, you know, cap and trade and a number of different, um, you know, taxation and sort of economic models a long, long time ago. My wife is an urban planner who is leading a sustainability charge here in New York, trying to put a center for sustainability study on Governor's Island um, as a way to sort of look at what the changing climate will do to cities uh, like New York that are based on ports um, and create, create thought leadership and obviously political action to stem out of that. You know, but but even still, just seeing how immediate it was, I I, I was on that podcast episode talking with both Andrea Pekovic, who is our cultural attaché, and my <laughs> co-host Renee Stubbs, who who also lives here in New York with me, although she spent the last two months down in Australia, her home, uh, her home country. She was saying, you know, she kept referring to her mother's house being in the path of the wildfires, and yeah. I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this is just a, a, a cyclical thing. Obviously, it's exacerbated by climate change. Um, but this was, you know, in in November uh, of of last year, so it didn't necessarily feel yet like it was going to be this cataclysmic thing. Just more of a, oh, that's too bad, and it's probably getting worse because of climate change. Not, oh my God, we have to stop and pause and really, really reflect on where we are and how much of a, on the brink we are. Um, you know, and, and I'll own up to that completely because in the in retrospect, I, I downplayed it. I didn't understand quite what was go- what was going on, and 
you know, in the feedback we got for that episode was really um, pointed, not necessarily in critique, but just in collective and constructive feedback about, hey, let's explore this. Let's talk a lot more about it. Um, You know, and so so I'm a little chagrined to say I wish I'd been a little bit more, um, you know, visionary at the time about it. But I'm, I'm happy that we have you know, a regular platform that would, we can discuss this and, and create some thought leadership of our own within the sport of tennis, you know, to, to start talking about this and figuring out what, uh, what we can do as a community and as an industry. So I love juxtaposition and you are two things for me and I want to put them kind of, I want to juxtapose them. One of them, you are a fan, you're a tennis player. It's an outdoor sport. You love the game. It's been part of your life for forever. You're also you're an insider and I think it's a fair term to use. And I don't mean it as a pejorative. You are the publisher of racket magazine. You host an extraordinarily popular tennis podcast. You have the ear and the ability to contact the sort of apex people within one of the most popular sports on the planet. When you put those next to each other, your level now of awareness and engagement and your sense of the level of awareness and engagement with the issue of climate change, especially after the 2020 Australian Open, is there a mismatch? Are, are they in lockstep? Is the sport of tennis, is it leading? Is it playing catch up? What is your sense of those two of those two in parallel? It's interesting. I mean, I, I hate to make this immediately political, but tennis typically is a lot more global. It's a lot more diverse and it's a lot more um, uh, in terms of p- people's political affiliation who tend to follow the sport. Um, a little bit more liberal leaning, um, you know, and we know that the denialism that's happened on the right, which has essentially been, you know, hijacked by a white nationalist, you know, fossil fuel addicted movement for the past, I would say, honestly, since really Fox News's emergence in the early 90s, um, has meant we haven't had a, an honest conversation about it. Now, tennis tends to be on the more educated, on the more plugged in, on the more global viewpoint um, in terms of fanship, um, which I think is great. And, it's striking still, though, that the tennis establishment hasn't been more overt, more responsive and, and filled with more leadership um, examples to get really ahead of the conversation here. I think it's been a real missed opportunity. Tennis is a notoriously conservative sport. And when people say that, it's not in reference to the politics that I just walked through. It's actually a little bit more in the sense that it's uh, a little bit set in its ways. It's a little bit um, retrograde. There's not a ton of sort of forward-looking uh, political and sort of sociological statements that that uh, the leadership, the tournaments, the players themselves, the agents really feel comfortable saying. As it's become very corporatized in the last 20 years, it's also become a whole lot less political in the ways that I think would actually be useful. So I'm I'm going to be candid and say I'm I'm quite disappointed and. You know, uh, I think there's there's tons of ways that the sport can and should be better. And I also think, you know, I, I appreciate you calling me an, an insider in the tennis world. It doesn't feel like that, which I think is both a good and a bad thing, because it yeah. also means we can and we are duty bound because we're an independent media publication, unlike most of the consolidated media that, you know, is is basically self-dealing most of the time in the industry. We have, I feel like, a moral obligation to be leaders, whether it's calling out homophobia in terms of Margaret Court's continued presence and honor um, right. you know, at the foot of the table, who's famously homophobic, but also racist. She supported apartheid in South Africa, you know, and supports shock therapy for gay people, uh, but also, you know, the environment. And I think one of the most forward looking uh, parts of our tennis world has typically been Tennis Australia. And I think they really failed on a couple of 
grand, grand moments, both with some of the socio uh, sociological stuff I was just talking about, but also the environmental stuff. Um, and I think we have our job is clearly cut out for us. We don't necessarily want to be political all the time. We tend to view our storytelling as imbued with politics. But when we have to be more overt, we certainly will be. Um, and I think this is a huge opportunity for us to, to be a little bit more vocal. Um, and, and it's something that we'll do on the podcast and the magazine, you know, in, a, in, a, in our various sort of footprint in the in the coming months, because it's necessary. It's so funny how as you and I flesh these things out, whether it was when you came on a few months ago to look at the evolution of gender equity in medicine in juxtaposition with tennis, and now we're having this conversation, what you were just saying about the people within the sport of tennis, this huge multi-billion dollar global industry that there's a responsibility to speak out on this issue. The same thing's happening in medicine. The exact same mathematic is happening in the profession of medicine for physicians, for nurses, for healthcare executives, you name it. Everyone is realizing that this is a moment where there is a responsibility and an obligation to be courageous and to say the current state is entirely unacceptable. And it's there's a lot of places where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think, think what what I like about what you just said, and it's interesting because we drew these parallels, I think, in, in totally different ways, uh, more about inclusion and diversity yeah. in our yeah. last conversation. Um, you know, and I'm really struck by, you know, I'm glad that we have words now to sort of talk about intersectionality, which allows us to sort of say like, okay, well, we are juggling a handful of different things that address power in, and inequity. Um, whether it's between, you know, human beings and the earth that we dwell upon or, you know, specific groups who, who you know, benefit and exploit others. And I think it's naive to th see these things as disconnected. And, you know, a lot of people <laughs> it, were taping this episode a couple of days after the Oscars and I was watching it over the weekend. And, um, you know, a lot of people really gave Joaquin Phoenix a lot of grief for going from, you know, gender and inclusion to animal rights and cow's milk and, everywhere back and forth in, in what was seen as a little bit of a sort of diversionary speech upon accepting, uh, you know, an award. And he's been pretty political in all of his award acceptance speeches. Um, but what I thought the people who made fun of him chose to ignore was the fact that he did a halfway decent and certainly laudable um, job of connecting oppression and inequality together. Because the truth is, you're seeing it in your industry, I'm seeing it in mine, everyone's seeing it in their industry, because that's the world we're, we're living in. And also, thanks to, you know, global communication tools, we actually have the ability to reach out and connect and draw parallels. And I think that that should and can make us stronger and more equipped to, to address it. Um, I also think it's allowed us to amplify it and, and to shine, shine a light on it. Um, because, you know, unfortunately it's getting worse, but I think it's, it all stems from, you know, the desire of certain groups of people to, to continue exploiting others. And in, in the case of our environment, you know, we've seen what happens when, you know, uh, uh, corporate and capitalism sort of corporate systems and capitalism kind of run amok. Like the answer is nobody's, nobody's a steward of the earth. Tennis has a huge chance to be that as does, I'm sure the, the medical industry as does every single other industry on the planet. Um, and so let's figure out how to learn from each other and actually start addressing it. So getting to that, then how much of the, what I think you and I might both perceive as a sense of inertia, how much of that is, is born out of this, a term that I've become more familiar with from some really smart people, particularly Courtney Howard. She's a emergency physician in Canada and she and I are going to be participating in CODA 2020, which is a, a climate change and global health conference later this year. 
it's going to be amazing. But she talks a lot about eco anxiety. How much of the inertia is people just saying like, I don't know how to talk about this. I don't know how to articulate it. My livelihood is based around a sport that is played outside around the entire world. I, I am, I am, I feel ill-equipped to even approach this and I'm scared. How yeah, much of, of it is, how much of that is sort of baked into tennis's inability to grapple properly with what it's facing? I mean, I think it's true of every single human being on the yeah. planet. It feels yeah. quite hopeless. And so therefore, you know, the rate of consumption of fossil fuels has only gone up in the last year or two because people sort of are throwing their hands up and saying, well, if we're hastening the end of the earth, you know, I might as well do it while taking multiple, you know, uh, long haul flights and <laughs> seeing what's left of it. I mean, it's a very cynical, but also very sort of sadly logical way that you can, you know, understand people's psyches. I think yeah. in, in the sense of, you know, I think two big things about this. I think, first of all, you know, uh, it doesn't really, um, it, it amounts to, to candidly very little to compost and recycle and to do the things like live in big cities that are automatically more, um, ecologically efficient in terms of their heating and transit, uh, op opportunities instead of driving long distances and, and heating and air conditioning entire houses, you know, so aside from, but it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So I think we can all sort of look at ourselves and sort of say like, what am I doing? On the other hand, I do think, and this is a real sort of passion point of mine, because I hear it a lot, which is, you know, leave politics out of sports. And the truth of what that statement means is sports are all already politicized. You just don't like the politics that we're espousing. Um, you know, the owners, the profiteers, the people who are holding their thumbs on the scales to sort of perpetuate the systems of inequality that we're talking about, whether they're in the racial sense or the gender sense or, you know, obviously in the environmental sense. Um, don't want us bringing politics into sport because their politics are already dominating. And I think the truth of it is, and I'm not trying to minimize the individual impacts that we can all make, but the truth of it is like huge decisions and huge global consortiums need to actually get traction. And right. I think what is happening politically in our country is intractable from this because the truth of it is the political system isn't broken. It's, it's, it's working as it's been designed, which is to keep a huge amount of people disenfranchised and a huge amount of people who are going to be more affected by climate change, uh, you know, away from the polls, feeling like it's hopeless, feeling like they have the same couple of candidates to choose from, feeling like, you know, climate change is too big a problem to solve. So why bother? And the truth of it is, you know, human beings have, have come together to, to do extraordinary things, you know? Um, and so I think, I think, being political, being politically active and doing the things that we talked about is, is the only way I know how to, um, you know, start to address that feeling of, you know, ecological angst that you describe. Right. But it's important to remember, though, and I think that this comes up in lots of other topics. You know, we do lots of content on Explore the Space around the epidemic of gun violence in the United States. Mm -hmm. These are not – it's not a political issue. Climate change is not a political issue, in my opinion. And no, I think most people would agree. It's a, fa it's a fact. Right. It's what's happening. Yeah. One of the levers to drive it is a political lever, but to say that it's a political issue and therefore we shouldn't engage with it, yeah. to me, and I, and you're right that that's used by lots of different that that's that's leveraging illusory truth effect as a cop out, mm -hmm. and and you can't do that. The, no, so the really challenge is, and you and I we're picking on the sport of tennis a little bit. Uh, every sport, every every venture is going to have to confront this. But tennis, I think, has had the spotlight shown on it a little bit more than other sports, particularly because of what happened, you know, in January with with the wildfires. 
the mathematic is the same. And I guess that was what was frustrating for me because if there had been statements from Tennis Australia and from the ATP and the WTA acknowledging the impact of climate change around these fires, the impact of the fires, what they're going to do around player safety and kind of just take the bull by the horns, it would have been a lot more resonant than a lot of what was, what actually happened, which was kind of crickets. And that was frustrating. Well, I think, you know, let's move this from the, sort of speculative into the into the literal. I think there was a couple of things they could have done, and I think there's a couple of things that they should do. Number one is addressing the fact that tennis, um, like a lot of sports, requires a ton of fossil fuels to sustain. Um, yeah. The truth of it is, you know, these players are traveling the globe multiple times a year, much less, you know, week on week to go to these different destinations. Um, you know, some huge, broad, and sort of, frankly, expensive, but visionary, you know, carbon cap and trade or carbon sink kind of program, it would be a way to get out in front of that and say, okay, well, we're supported by Chase Bank. Chase Bank is notorious one of the most entrenched fossil fuel sort of enabling banks, uh, financial institutions around the globe. What if Chase, as a huge sponsor, decided to essentially avert the course of history and put their billion dollars of, you know, daily profits, not, not even annual profits, like by the day, the amount of money these guys have to allocate to some of this stuff, um, you know, would be really, really meaningful. And as a sponsor of tennis, a sport that is a little bit heavier in terms of the fossil fuel use just because of travel would be really meaningful. There are some really small scale but meaningful ways in which tennis is succeeding that I want to call out because I think it could be a model for other sports. Um, there is a new tennis ball that's that's meant to last longer. The containers are made of of uh, sustainable materials. They're produced sustainably. And the idea that they're going to cut down on waste, um, is something that a company called Wilson with its Trinity ball is trying to address. There have been movements. Evian has gone a little bit of a way to do this. I'd like to see them go further to ban single use plastic, because as we know, even when we recycle plastic, we can never really truly recycle it. Um, and the move towards water canisters that are made of metal and cardboard, um, and the, and the, cessation of the use of plastic bags covering rackets that are yeah. get restrung multiple times an hour, multiple times per match for each of these players. You know, it's the stuff like that in aggregate that I think is really meaningful, but the truth of it is the travel really is yeah. hugely impactful along with the manufacturing of a particular clothes. Adidas came out, as I mentioned on the podcast with a, with a line of sustainable made from plastic upcycled uh, clothing line called the Parlay last year, which I thought was again, a step in the right direction. It's it's I, I hope it's not greenwashing, um, which, as you know, is, you know, the attempt by corporations to sort of say, like, hey, we're doing a tiny, tiny thing that happens to be green. But the core of our business, right. you know, is still is still very much entrenched in these sort of ecologically devastating practices, which is why I think, you know, the travel, the fossil fuels, the jet fuel and and frankly, some of these banks uh, that are so supportive of tennis could really lead the way because I think the audience is ready for it. And I think it could be a leader. And I think every other sport could fall in line and sort of look at that as a way to, to conduct business. Because the truth of it is, you know, we're voting with our wallets and we're voting with yeah. our attention as much as we are, are, are as much as anything else. And I think, the, you know, the tipping that, point is coming thing. for sure. The tipping point, especially around divestment, I think is coming. And again, looking at tennis as sort of the flashpoint for this is, yeah. is, is valid. I am as big a fan of Roger Federer as there is. I've I bought the t-shirts. I've watched him play. I have a really great Roger Federer autograph story. Uh, He's, he's great. He's the greatest tennis player of of all time. He's the most fun athlete to watch. He's, he's wonderful. He is sponsored by a bank called credit Swiss. It's a Swiss bank and they have invested $57 billion since 2016 
in companies that are looking for new fossil fuel deposits. This fact was called out recently, and there was a little bit of back and forth, and he was put in a position where he had to release a statement about his his response and this relationship. And it made me think about if Roger Federer did something that as a society we felt was outside, or if he committed a crime, Credit Suisse would drop him like a hot rock. It will be very interesting when we get to the point where someone calls this out and Roger Federer or somebody else says, you know what, I can't participate in a partnership with you anymore. I have right. to, in, as an individual, divest. It's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Imagine I, if it had happened here, though. Dying to, I'm dying to see who's going to do it first. And the truth yeah. is, you know, there are very few transcendent athletes. Yeah. Um, you know, I would maybe make the argument that Serena or Martina Navratilova is the greatest of all time, given different metrics. But in terms of power, marketing power, you called it out. Power, I got to backtrack. So, no, greatest fine. male tennis player of all time. The greatest, like the greatest athlete, is Serena. Uh, There's no yeah, one like her. It's true. But the truth is, you know, there are very few athletes, um, you know, in any sport who can really command the attention. Of of multiple, multiple yeah. huge swaths of the global, you know, attention. And I think, yeah. I think it would be wonderful. And really what's to be lost? What's to, what's to oh jeopardize at this point for these people, you know, I Roger Federer signed a $250 million or something in that ballpark deal with Uniqlo two years ago. If his prize winnings, if his Rolex deal, if his credit Suisse deal, if his Swiss chocolate deal, et cetera, I could go on. Wasn't, already padding his bank account enough that he could walk away from a sponsor by making a statement, you know, then, then what's he in it for? And I, and I think part of, part of the tennis culture that we are very cognizant about and very politically engaged by is really the activism and the conversation that happened in the sport around the seventies and eighties. You know, we talked about this a little bit last time, but you know, tennis, remember, is one of the first sports that had athletes crossing the color barrier. It's one of the first sports that had women advocating for equal pay in such a way that actually modeled for other sports uh, how to do it and how to establish a precedent. It also had the first trans athlete in the 70s. You know, we are in a lot of ways ahead of the game. And for whatever reason, the last 20 years or so have been really corporatist and really safe. And I thought it was actually a really cool sign that Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe, you know, who sometimes politics I don't necessarily always agree with, went out and got in trouble at the Australian Open by protesting Margaret Court Arena and the celebration around Margaret Court. Yeah, you might think yeah. that that's totally unrelated to your your sort of hypothetical around Federer, but the truth of it is McEnroe and Martina came of age and were superstars in an era where speaking your mind made you pay a price, but it was also part of the global sort of uh, audience you commanded. And I applaud them for still sticking to that sort of politicized statement um opportunity that they they took advantage of whereas yeah. Federer, you know and i it's hard to imagine nadal djokovic serena you know anybody really really getting engaged politically if anybody serena's done it more than most venus as well i want to make sure we call her out because she had a lot to say about the gender uh, equality in terms of pay but the truth of it is like most of the agents and most of the co sort of corporate backers are really really um, you know, I, in my mind, have their thumbs on the scale, and I and I think it sucks, and I I want them to be braver, and I hope it happens sooner rather than later.
the same mathematic is happening in the profession of medicine too, though. And I don't want it to sound like I'm just sitting here railing away at the, you know, the fatted cows of professional sports. <laughs> we had one of the leaders of the, of our profession, Richard Horton, who's a physician and is the editor in chief of the Lancet who went on the record and said that physicians have an obligation to engage in nonviolent protests around climate change. That is an unheard of comment in this profession where physicians do not ruffle feathers. They do not speak out. We're learning how we've had some incredibly intelligent and forward-thinking people demonstrate how to do it, right? Mona Hanna Atisha did her work in Flint, Michigan, demonstrating the lead contamination in the water. That was groundbreaking stuff. There's always, but there's a long history of physicians stepping into this place, right? Physicians against the proliferation of nuclear weapons. They won a Nobel Prize. Yeah. All of our industries, all of us, tennis, the publishing world, which you're also involved in, medicine, we all have a, an opportunity now to figure out how to use the megaphones that we're equipped with responsibly and effectively. And I think it is okay to call these things out. I'm curious, do you hear, knowing that you do have this entree into one of these big global sports, is there a conversation? Do you think that there's a player who's going to say, I am not going to be sponsored by company X because of their continued commitment to fossil fuels, acknowledging that that is what is driving climate change on, on our planet? It's, I, I'm optimistic that it will happen. I was really encouraged. And again, it's hard to find the climate example just because nobody's actually done it yet. Yeah, um, yeah. Nicole Gibbs made a lot of headlines. Nicole Gibbs is a former NCAA um, champion at Stanford. They won national championships. She's a player who sort of hovered around the 100 to 120 range, uh, a young player out of uh, Cal Southern California, originally from Ohio. She came out and said, uh, that she was disappointed in her own sponsor, New Balance, when it was clear that they had been tied to some of the Trump policies on um, on taxation and essentially, uh, you know, immigration, which I was really pleased to see, not because I necessarily share her political views, although I do, but more because I, I thought it was very brave to call out not only a sponsor in the tennis world, but your own, who, you know, for somebody who's hovering around 100 and 120 in the world, is not necessarily making a ton of money from tournament appearances, just given the cost of how how, how much, it, you know, what you have to take on to, to make get yourself from tournament to tournament, pay for your own coaches, physios, etc. So she was a really cool example. I wish we had more high profile examples. And I share your optimism that we like will soon, but I don't have any until it happens. It's so hard to speculate who who's really got this sort of, um, you know, who's really got those sort of frankly courage to do it. One thing that I think we can talk about because it translates through all of these different professions we're talking about is um, generational. I do hope that this young generation that is going to be inheriting all of these issues, all these problems that we've left them, you know, really the baby boomers are most to blame, but you know, we haven't, we haven't fixed them in, you know, the Gen X and millennials either. I hope these really young kids just absolutely have zero patience and zero fear in totally upending the systems that we've settled them with. And I hope that that's true, whatever the profession we're talking about, because we haven't, we haven't left them much to work with. And I think getting real radicalized and getting real aggro is, is what it's going to take. So when you mentioned Nicole Gibbs, my first thought was actually not what you mentioned because I didn't know that, and I appreciate you sharing it with me. Mm. Nicole Gibbs is also a cancer survivor. She had salivary gland cancer and was diagnosed at the age of 26 and had to leave the tour for a while and yeah. got through an extraordinarily rigorous thing. She's been very transparent about it. I'm very comfortable sharing that because it's public record. She's given She's multiple interviews. Yeah, for sure. And and it's a it's a it's it's worth mentioning. I, because you brought her up that that is also part of her story. And I think it's a valuable part of her story because 
clearly she holds it with some level of value. Your point around the younger generation in tennis playing a role in what you and I were just discussing, it's interesting. Growing up, I remember, and I'm sure you do too, there was the the wave of young players and there was a real backlash. What's the right age for these young players to get on the mm-hmm. tour and things like that? Are they emotionally mature enough? And there are all these big stories about people splashing out and having really bad things happen. It's interesting though, I, I'm the same as you. I'm also looking at the Coco Goffs of the world and the younger players <laughs> who are coming on tour. They're teenagers. They are that generation and they have the microphone and the the bandwidth to get around the world in a heartbeat. It would be really interesting if it was one of these people who we know are smart, we know they're bright, we know they have access to all of this knowledge. It's going to be one of them, I bet, I think. And I think it'll be really impactful. I hope. I mean, I feel so mixed about it because it it's a terrible burden we've left them. But yeah, I also think yeah. they have, we have done such a, you know, as the British would say, made a dog's dinner out of what, <laughs> what we're leaving them behind, that they, they shouldn't have any, yeah. um, you know, they shouldn't have any reverence for the systems that they're inheriting. You know, I think what is so apparent to us. What a again, great way to put it. They shouldn't have any reverence for the systems that they're inheriting. I, I knew you were going to drop something on me that I'm going to be <laughs> adding to tweets and quoting. That's it. We don't need to have reverence for the things that we're inheriting. It's true. and I That's think, smart. You know, well, I mean, I think, you know, you and I are talking about stuff that, you know, I'm not even a particular, a particularly political person. It's just, it's just super, super obvious that, you know, to, to deal with some of the stuff, you're going to have to be fearless. I think what is amazing about sports, which is why you and I are both drawn to it is because the narratives and the courage and the grace in, in victory and the uh, integrity in defeat is, is something that gets boiled down to manageable sizes when it's on a field of sport, right? It's not life and death like in your profession. It's a safe way to lose. It's a, it's a, it's a contained way to win uh, and to dominate somebody else. And, and my hope is that, that even, even though the stakes are, are frankly less high than in, in, in the field that I'm, that I find myself than in the field you do, that I, that I think some of these kids can, can demonstrate some courage um, and, and, that we haven't had, frankly. And, and I hope I share your optimism, but you know, it also, I just want to note that they shouldn't have to, um, you know, but I think, <laughs> I think, you know, time's running out, right? Like yeah, what else yeah. are you going to do? What is your sense of this year for the sport that you and I both love? Do you think that it's ascendant? Do you think that it's going to be a bumpy stretch and I'm, and I'm asking more as a tennis fan. I mean, we've, yeah. you know, we've, we've sat in a very heavy space for the last 30 minutes. I do want to capitalize on the fact <laughs> that I have one of the brightest minds and, and most articulate people <laughs> around the sport that I love. Like, what are we looking forward to for this year? What are we, what are we anticipating? What's going to happen? Well, I think actually that's kind of a good way to transition from some of this heavy stuff into something a little bit more le- that's filled with a little bit more levity, but, but still, you know, keep some of the space that we've been sort of, you know, talking about, which is, I think, you know, what, what we are seeing as the tour ages out on the men's side and the fact that people are seemingly finally fatigued of the, the, the question of who's the greatest of all time. Cause the truth is the greatest is a, you know, it's a subjective measure. You want to say totally. grand slams, but that truly really didn't matter to people until, you know, the past decade when it needed that sport needed another marketing tool. People looked at Martina Navratilova's overall total amount of titles, whip singles, doubles, mixed doubles, uh, or Jimmy Connors's win percentage as being some of the greatest things that ever happened. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so, so 
I think on the men's side, we're really in a conundrum. And I think the, the apparatus that the tour has built um, around these, these superstars um, is finally ready to kind of implode. And I think that's yeah. a great thing because it means they need to get out of the way and make room for the next generation, which is yep. about to happen. You can see team is so close on the men's side to knocking. Uh, Maybe knocking we've been hearing about the next generation for a couple of iterations now, and it sure. does feel very much like the NBA post magic <laughs> bird, Jordan, yeah. It was it was rough it was tough sledding there for a minute but now it took a like long you time. just yeah I'm okay with it I've you know I've I've had so much fun watching all of them play they're great I still enjoy it I am also ready to see uh, a new bat a new mixture of players kind of rise up and I think that it is going to capture just more of right that was that was then it's it is time for that sort of fresh look the women's side has never been more compelling I'm so excited been. about oh my gosh and that's the kind depth of, the, of talent the and the people, holy cow. The variety you get, the personalities, the contrast in styles, the sort of surface specialists oh, have begun to reemerge. It's totally. great. I mean, in terms of the storylines, the you know, the the multifaceted, interesting human beings we have to we have to sort of contemplate. Obviously, Coco, as you mentioned, Bianca yeah. Andrescu, this sort yeah. of meditation centric, you know, visualization empowered, yeah. you know, young Canadian who has no fear. No fear. Um, Holy cow. No she fear. She's tough. She's tough, and so is Osaka, who just yeah. announced that she's going to be part of a Netflix documentary, and you know, obviously spans three different countries in terms of who that. she identifies with. Yeah. You know, there's just super, super compelling matchups, and to me, it's it's. We talked about this a little bit uh, on our prior discussion, but one of the things I like so much about sports generally is I like the experience of the game. I like going to a baseball game and just taking in the game, taking in the smells, taking in the sounds, taking in the, the defense versus offensive battle that's happening play by play between pitcher and batter between infield and, and offense. But I also want to remind people that tennis, even if you don't play it is more about the, the spin and the speed and the agility. And it's not necessarily about a name you recognize. Now we just talked about people who I think are going to be mega stars yeah, on the women's yeah. side. But the fact of the matter is day in and day out, any match you watch is just going to be super, super fiercely competitive. And the truth is that uh, I think that unpredictability is what makes the sport really, really great. And I'm really optimistic. And I think we're trying very much to be a driver of this is that that variety, that whimsy, that lack of predictability is actually a feature, not a bug. Because the truth of it is, when you watch somebody's inevitable march to victory and, and have seen them collapse to their knees in ecstasy of, of victory 20 times, it's 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 boring, frankly. And I think <laughs> what I love about you know not only the youth narrative on the men's side, but the established variety on the women's side at yeah. this point – is that we have that every single week. So if you aren't getting excited about that, you know, consider in which the way in which you're consuming it, um, you know, because I think you're missing a chance to really enjoy something that's phenomenal. Um, I totally agree with you. It's going to be think, fun yeah. to have a stretch of time where the women's game is more compelling than the men's because 2020, uh, it's going to be the women's draw for sure. The men's game is in a sifting period and that's sure. fine. And the women's game is just, is just in an extraordinary place right now. I do want to pick up on the, the your use of the we in your statement. You're, the we in this point was Racket Magazine. And we do need to spend a minute because there's no sure, better yeah. landing zone from my perspective to capture that joy, that love, that whimsy of what happens in this wonderful global sport. Where yeah. do people find Racket Magazine? I've been, I have issue one all the way up. They're on the shelf. They're awesome. Where do we find it? Where do people go? And what are they going to get? When, oh, I love it when it comes in the mail. What do they get? Thank you. Well, you're very kind to give me a plug opportunity. Um, it's racketmag.com. We spell racket the old-fashioned way with a Q and a U. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's a quarterly 
literary publication. The, the love, the design, the coffee table sort of um, intention is pretty clear when you pick it up. Yep. It's made of really yep. hard stock. It's it's meant to be savored. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you start with the most recent issue or it the very first one we published three years ago. You know, Racket is also a conversation that extends past this print object. We'll have our first book out this year, which is an anthology of the, some of the best writing we feel like we've published in the last three years. Um, and we're no way. That's breaking itself. news. I didn't know that. Yeah, you heard it here first. You're the first oh. person uh, to to know this in the in the media sphere. So we'll have that um, hopefully. I'm, I'm reserving my August. signed copy now. <laughs> happy to happy to get you one, and to do some documentary films. It's actually interesting because the story you just talked about, the women um, really taking over the scene, is is the subject of a docu- documentary film we're developing that essentially looks at the early 2000s when the women's game was dominant. The men had a gap essentially between the Andre and Pete years. And it was really before the emergence of uh, Roger Federer and then later, obviously, Nadal. Um, and, you know, the fact that both Williams sisters, Lindsay Davenport, Justine Hennon, Kim Kleisters, Jennifer Capriati, you know, you name it. These were totally. the most yep. transcendent, splendid athletes with the kind of variety that you just mentioned is happening again now. Um, you know, and, and the subject yeah. of our documentary film is going to be about, you know, talking about how essentially the tour had the chance to unify. Um, the women came to the men and said, hey, let's make one tour. Let's negotiate these deals together. Let's be stronger together as we know that the joint events on the tour make more money, get more viewership, get more excitement. Um, and the men walked away, even though they had an inferior product. So it's sort of interesting that that's about to happen again. And my hope in, in sort of flogging this idea is not only that we can remind people that it was possible before and it's going to be possible again, but also to see if we can't, you know, tip our, put our, you know, thumbs on the scale a little bit and say, Hey, the sport would be much better if we had one governing body. Let's, uh, let's see if we can't get everybody in the room together because ultimately that is what is going to be more powerful from a sort of audience perspective, but also, in doing deals with all these sponsors and addressing some of the big political issues like climate change that we've been talking about. I'm never playing cards with you because I had no idea any (laughs) of that was coming. And like my eyes were just bugging out. You're doing documentary films. I'm delighted. That's awesome. That's so exciting. I mean, I think, you know, our storytelling expands to whatever Uh, medium we feel like is, is best suited for it. My partner, David and I are journalists first and storytellers first. So, you know, it's important that we also mention though, too, you do have a podcast it's the best tennis podcast going. It's one of the best sports <laughs> podcasts going. Thank you. That is that is destination listening for anyone with a, a remote interest in this sport. I, I'm a huge fan of that show. That's Thank how I think I friends. first discovered. No, I think you're right. I think you wrote me because yeah. And actually, you know, it's interesting. We had uh, Nicole Gibbs who we just talked about on our podcast this summer, uh, and it was the first place that she talked about. She had just had her surgery um, wow. from the roof of her mouth, talking about cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the only reason I'm plugging that in in, in a specific way is because I was really struck by how vulnerable she allowed herself to be the, you could hear in the tape that we recorded the air sort of whizzing through the open cavity in her mouth that still had yet to heal. And she was, she invited us into her home. She was warm. She was very open about being scared and, and confronting some very major life moments, but also life decisions and what she wanted to do coming out of that experience and how she wanted to treat herself and how she wanted to treat her career and, and obviously her loved ones and this, this sport that has been with her since she was a kid. So, you know, I, I love being on this podcast. I love listening to your podcast as well, because I think this audio medium 
you know, we've been talking about books and magazines and films, but you know, what I love so much about this audio medium is you feel like these people are, are with you in your head and yeah. in, in your heart. And I think that that's a really unique and powerful way to tell stories. It's not the only way to tell stories, but it's a, it's a good one. one that, it's a really it, good when one. It, when it resonates, it's really, really impactful. So and, and I'm going to put a link. Definitely. I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to the episode, the racket podcast episode with Nicole, because it's excellent. Thank you. I, I really value these, these mashup episodes. I like that we're doing this. You know, I think <laughs> that you. it, yeah. Same. It's fun. It's entertaining. And like you say, right, it brings people that you wouldn't necessarily get to into your home. Like people don't get to talk to the publisher of Racket Magazine routinely, but they get to hear from you. And I think that there's real value in that. I also like that our our, our industries, there's that commitment to wanting to get better. And yeah. I, I think that that common ground, it affords us that kind of entree to have difficult conversations and to talk about fun things, but also important and challenging things and to learn from one another because that connective tissue is all still there. So I'm always grateful that you're interested in coming on this show. I think it's fin- it's fantastic that you do so. You've got to come back in August because you're going to have a book to plug. That's that's, that's mandatory. Right. Yes, it's a deal. I'll tell you what. Let's continue this conversation in August. Maybe by then all the stuff we've been predicting will come true. We'll have, we'll have that's right. Past. That's right. Well, well, I really nice. appreciate that would be amazing. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time. Thank you so much, Caitlin. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.